1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Eralda Lameborshi, one of the hosts for the network, and today we are talking to Peter Van Hove, Associate Lecturer in the Department of Languages and Cultures at Lancaster University. Peter holds a PhD in Italian and Comparative Literature from Columbia University. And today we will be talking about his book, Word Literature After Empire, Rethinking Universality in the Long Cold War, published this year by Rutledge um, in their Studies in Comparative Literature series. Peter, welcome and thank you so much for speaking with me.
0: Thank you, Uralda. It's great uh, to be here and thank you for having me.
1: Um, I've really enjoyed the book, and it seems like such an important contribution to the discussion on word literature. I have been especially impressed, and I have appreciated the scope and its interdisciplinarity. And a question that came up um, continuously as I was looking through the book was about its story or its genesis. Um, How did the project start for you? What was the seed that sort of planted this idea? And what was the trajectory? So, yeah, I suppose I'm asking for the story, how this book came to be.
0: Uh, Sure. I'm I'm very happy to to tell you a little bit more about the story of the the book. So basically, I, I think the seed was planted when I was writing my dissertation. It's my first book. The book mm-hmm. is not my dissertation. Let me that say that, uh, you know, first of all, it's it's it's, it's very different, I'd say. Um, but it still um, kind of like follows the same framework. I wanted to write mm-hmm. a comparative book, so I knew that. Uh, and I wanted to write a book that encompassed the three languages that I work in, which is uh, French, Italian, um, and uh, Chinese. So in the book, actually, two chapters are dedicated to each language. Uh, there's six mm-hmm. chapters in total and two Two chapters are dedicated to one, one, uh, two to French, two to Italian, and two to Chinese. Um, and basically, in the book, I wanted to look um, at how the idea of um, of a world, the idea of the universal, but it, which are two different ideas. You know, you have to, you can't really equate one idea with the other. But um, mm-hmm. let, let's say world, uh, right? Uh, how that idea was reconfigured um, after decolonization uh, and during the Cold War. Um, and so I set out to do my research. I went to archives in in France. I went uh, to China as well. Um, I went to Italy, and um, I came up with a lot of really interesting materials. Um, and uh, you know, um, I wanted to make sure also that the book kind of—I don't know if you want me to, to keep going or after. No, <laughs> um, <course>
1: continue. <laughs> Thank yeah, you.
0: Uh, uh, so um, I, I wanted to make sure you know that you know we we look at this idea of a world in the broadest sense possible. So I wanted to look at um, philosophy. I wanted to look at um, art history. Um, Very important for me was also the debate on world literature and translatability. Um, And then finally, I also uh, looked at how the idea of a world was reinvented uh, by international organizations like uh, Penn International, but also UNESCO and on the other side of the Cold War divide the the, uh, Afro-Asian Writers' Bureau. Um, So, um, yeah, looking at the idea of world culture in in the broadest possible sense of the term, I think, uh, and I focus mostly on this debate on world literature and and, and translatability because I think that's actually the field, uh, you could say, or the discipline where the idea of a world has been fleshed out in in the most concrete way. Um so I'd say that really is the genesis. That's also kind of explains perhaps why, you know, the the book covers so many different disciplines, as you say. Um, you know, um I wanted to make sure that it has a very a very broad approach, but you know the the case studies in the in, in the book go in lot in a in, in lot more detail. So um, you know, I look uh, and I also look at, you know, several important figures that kind of shaped uh, the debate on the worldly and the universal um, after decolonization. I look at people like uh, Sartre, Fanon, and, and Beauvoir in the francophone context, but also uh, Malraux and his idea of the Musée Imaginaire, uh, the imaginary museum of world art. Uh, then I look at Italian figures, uh, Italian intellectuals who were, you know, third they, they were turdled turd world- worldists. That's what they called themselves, right? People like... Alberto Moravia, people like Pasolini, Gramsci is an important figure for me. And then in the Chinese context, um, I looked at uh, you know two different case studies. I looked at the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau that I already mentioned, um, which um, kind of sought to, which was an organization that was, um, uh, you know, initially it was you know it was composed of countries that you know most of them were all decolonizing countries at the time. Um, and it was initially very much dominated by the Soviet Union, but later on became very much uh, controlled by the Chinese. And so I look at uh, the Chinese uh, contributions to the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau and how they were trying to uh, reinvent the notion of world literature. Um, and then I also look at an artist, a Chinese artist, which is much later, we're talking the close of the Cold War here, so around 1989, look at an artist called kuang uh, Yong Ping, and it's, it's very interesting, he, his work was, included in an exhibition in France in 1989, which was this exhibition that uh, purported to be the first global exhibition, uh, the first exhibition of global art. Um, And on the other hand, he was also at the same time included in an exhibition in China. And I kind of look at those two different curatorial concepts and how they sought to envelop this evasive artist or elusive artist that was uh, Huang Yongping. Um, I don't know. So I hope this gives you an idea of the genesis of the the book.
1: it does. I um, there's so much breadth in it, and I um, it's it's wonderful to read and 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 kind of see all of these uh, different disciplines come together in your writing. Um, I wanted to go back to a remark you made early on, which you you brought up the idea of world and the universal, and were very. Um, intentional about making sure that that there was this separation in those two concepts Uh, and could you tell me a little bit more um, about that you know what what do you see as a difference how do you draw that difference and how does it play within um, the overall argument that you are making in the book?
0: Oh, that's a really deeply philosophical question, <laughs> and of course, no, we could I could go on for hours. But sure, um, sure. You, you know, basically, the point I want to make is that it's important not to conflate the two, because of course, um, it's a, th- those two terms have been, you know, very important in 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 philosophical debates. Um, I think one point I'd make uh, is about this idea of the universal, right? So, because I think a lot of the book kind of takes its or of the the philosophical framework of the book or theoretical framework of the book takes its premise from Judith Butler's idea of a restaging of the universal because you know of course historically uh, the idea of the universal uh, you know as it grew in you know European enlightenment thought for instance has always excluded those on the world's margins it is included excluded gendered subjects uh, queer subjects non white subjectivities colonial subjectivities um andre uh, butler she makes she she has a wonderful article um i think it's called restaging the universal actually where she makes this point that yes that history has happened that's that's very important on the one hand, but she says that that history of exclusion does not really um prohibit or inhibit anyone for, uh, who has been historically on the margins of the universal from claiming the universal uh, themselves. Um, so, um, one of the points that I tried to make in the book uh, is that, um, you, you know, the pe- people of in, in a decolonizing world were, were yes, inc- historically excluded from the universal, exc- were, were excluded from the Eurocentric world. But they were making claims to a world of their own. They were, um, um, as as Marx uh, fam- famously said uh, in the Communist Manifesto, they were trying to win the world back. Um, and so I look mostly at um, uh, you know Hegelian uh, framework there, but I also look at Gramsci. And what what Gramsci really teaches us, I think, is this idea that. Um, you know, he kind of warns us uh, against the pitfalls of any attempts at universalization. You know, he he was, uh, he, Gramsci was one of the people actually who, who claimed that, um, you know, anyone can come up with their own conception of the world. Whether or not you've been historically excluded, whether or not you're on the margins, whether or not you're a colonial subject, a non-white subject, a gender subject, a queer subject you know, for him that, of course, those terms didn't really matter. But, uh, you know, he makes this this claim that anyone can come up with their own conception of the world. But at the same time, he warns us against, you know, the pitfalls of these attempts at universalization. And we see that in the world today, the world that we live in today, I think. And this is something I I try to put forward in the book is, um, you know, it's true, yes, that people who were historically on the margins, um, you know, during the Cold War, were making claims for the, making their own uh, claims to worldliness. Were formulating their own conceptions of the world. But to, in today's world, we see places like China, who are you know uh, now kind of still claiming that history uh, of the Cold War and uh, of colonization, etc. Uh, but of course, they right they, they they right now are are you know putting their their own world. View forward very emphatically, uh, you know, in the, in the case of China, for instance, and this also uh, risks actually um, bringing about a, a world in which people people are once again excluded from uh, the kind of uh, world they are imagining. Uh, especially in China, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, the the protesters in the, in Hong Kong or the Uyghur people or queer people in China. Um, you know, they they have uh, historically. Um, been excluded in the in, in mostly and and this exclusion has been mostly ex- discussed in a Western context, but of course in a place like China, which claims to you know have you know constructed their alternative worldview in op- in opposition to the dominant Western worldview, those queer people um are still excluded right um right yeah yeah I, i'm i'm not sure if i'm answering your question here, as no, you see, no, is, i can kind of go off on my own <laughs> train of thought <laughs> no this is
1: wonderful no it's 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 very it's animating the book for me in a wonderful way so thank you um i wanted to and and i i feel that it's important to highlight the the, the the different universalities, and I'm I'm going to use this word here in in your book. You know, you discuss the ways in which worlds through feminism and um, queer queerness, and also deconstruction. Right? How we have this different other ways of thinking about the universal, and this. You, you write in your book, and I'm quoting you here, um, the idea of alternative conceptions of philosophical universality, universal culture, and world literature, and their developed development during colonization and during the Cold War. And I really appreciate this notion that that you put forth where unlike our more standard and traditional understanding of universality being of European origin, um, there is this argument put forth that this understanding is one-sided and I would add imbalanced. So you argue that we need to extend it to have a, quote, multipolar constellation of competing avatars. And y- you were getting into some of that in your discussion of Gramsci and uh, bringing in the role that China is playing even currently in, in, in establishing an idea of world or um, an idea of the universal. And so I wanted to to see if you could talk a little bit about this idea of multipolar constellation in particular, but also this idea of competing avatars, how you see them, Uh, not only how you see them during the long Cold War, but also currently um, as you gesture toward China's role currently in the world.
0: Yeah, great, uh, great question. And again, you know, I, I, I hope I don't go off too much on on my own train of thought here. Uh, but yeah, this idea. I welcome
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: uh, so um, basically, uh, you know, of course, we, we think of the Cold War as a bipolar world, right? You yeah. have, you know, uh, two sides of the divide. Um, but i think the the debate on the on the universal as you say has been kind of one sided in the sense that it has been uh, mostly discussed in in a western context but of course uh, the idea of the universal is not solely a western concept and that's what i'm trying to get across in the book I, I i don't really discuss this in detail in the chinese context for instance but this of course is a, has a millennial history in the chinese context you know for this is a concept in china, in, in china known as tianxia or all under heaven where uh, the chinese have historically um you know um, in, in imperial times already and for a very long time for 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 millennia, seen themselves as the center of the world, right? The the, the name of the country itself, Zhongguo, uh, means the Middle Kingdom, right? Uh, so China has always seen itself as the center, as as the center of the un, of the universe. Um, but um, you know, in in the Western context, the as you say, the deconstruction of the universal has mostly focused on um, you know the on how the idea of the universal was invented in the West. Um, and uh, was um, used as 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 a as an excuse, you could say, for cultural colonialism was was abused. The Enlightenment was abu- was was abused as an as as a as a as a tool as a as a tool to bring about cultural colonialism. Um, and you know and this is a very justified debate and this debate is ongoing i'm not saying that this is not an important debate i mean um you know uh, that, that's not that not, not at all the claim i want to make so I, I want to reiterate also that you know i very much um you know align myself and i'm i'm you know nowhere near their level but people like Gayatri Spivak have always warned against the dangers of the of universalization um you know uh, the critique of the universal also extends to debates uh, on uh, on humanism and posthumanism etc and those are important ongoing debates that's not what I'm uh, what I'm saying so I'm saying those debates we should still have them you know <laughs> by all means we shouldn't uh, but on the other hand i think um, what we shouldn't forget is that other places also uh, beyond the west also wanted to uh, claim the universal um, and many people in the west actually uh, expressed their solidarity uh, with these people i mean i, I have a chapter on on, on sartre and uh, his uh, preface to lumumba for instance um or um you know um or you know people like moravia and pasolini in the italian context uh, they were third third, third worldists uh intellectuals from the west who were expressing their solidarity with what was happening in the decolonizing world um, but I think uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that, um, yeah, we should also, we shouldn't forget that, uh, you know, the the people beyond the Western, people who were non-white, people who were uh, anti-colonial uh, critics were uh, were also claiming the world, were trying to win the world back, as, uh, you know, as, as, as Marx famously said. And um, that can also bring about a danger that can also you know uh, because in especially in the chinese context uh, you know um they they still see themselves as in as being in competition with the west so for uh, in in a Chin- in a chinese context i'd say uh, the cold war hasn't completely come to an end you know china um historically did see itself as the center of the world but of course um it's it it was um that's that that status completely disappeared uh after colonization china was a, a semi-colonized country um and uh it's still today China very much sees, sees itself part as, as as part historically of the decolonizing world they um you know they they were trying back in the um in in the cold war days under mao to forge alliances um with uh, other decolonizing countries especially in, in, in Africa but also in 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 uh, in Asia uh, and also in uh, Latin America um, and so that's one of the things I also examine in the book you know these um, attempts on the, on the part of uh, countries like China to um, re, to re, to uh, to you know to reinvent the world beyond the West so to speak um, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here no um, you are you are yeah. this is great yeah, yeah. um
1: I and 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 I think that and 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 Gramsci keeps coming back to me uh, primarily from what you have written in the book, but also some of the remarks that you made earlier, you know this idea of multipolar constellation that every um every group or every community can and will have a desire, and you know, correct me if i'm if I'm uh, paraphrasing you incorrectly here, but, but that, that there is the possibility of creating a story of what the world is from the subject position of the community. And uh, what I'm hearing you say is that there was an attempt outside of the sort of the Janus-faced binary of the Cold War, right, that there were um, other actors Outside of the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that were important players in constructing these um, stories about what the world is and and their relationship to that story and their relationship to to these other powerful actors. And um, I'm not sure where I was going with it, but but I guess I was affirming perhaps what what you you were talking about earlier. Um, in relation to Gramsci. And that brings me to another part of the book that um, I found interesting, and it's uh, especially, as it is sort of described briefly in the introduction, um, the discussion on the China and the Soviet Union um, in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split and mm. how that shaped the decolonizing efforts. I was really curious about um and you have already alluded to this about how China steps in once um, the Soviets create a, a more harmonious relationship with Western powers and you have then the Chinese influence on um other world building, right, or or world building ideas, and I was um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that particular juncture, that historical juncture, and how you see that playing a role in decolonizing efforts and building new world stories uh, during the Cold War.
0: Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that's you know it's I think it's one of the strong points in the book. That's my chapter on the uh, Afro Asian Writers Bureau and the Chinese. Uh, uh in you know um the the influence that the chinese had in that context but you know i also talk about the sino-soviet split and how that also influenced western thinkers like Pasolini and moravia um, uh, because they um, like many other westerners were um, increasingly uh, turning their gaze towards china in the wake of the sino-soviet split um and so uh, you know uh, china yes very importantly um Initially, they kind of, uh, you, you know, hooked their train. Can you say that? No, they they, uh, <laughs> they, they, they were very much, um, you know, in alliance with the Soviets uh, prior to the uh, Sino-Soviet split. Uh, you know, the Soviets were sending a lot of advisors to China, uh, and this was also um, something that was reflected in the uh, Chinese conception of of world literature, as uh, mm-hmm. in Chinese. uh, Initially, uh, and I looked at 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 Chinese. You know, I I went to the Chinese archives, went to the National Library of China, which is a very daunting place. Let me tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But I I found all these documents um, there, which Mm -hmm. kind of illustrate this history of how initially their idea of world literature was very much modeled uh, after the Soviets. Um, and there was this um, a Chinese thinker called Zhou Yang, who was one of the main architects, you could say, of uh, Chinese literary criticism at the time during the Mao era. Um, and uh, he initially was, you know, writing in Russian journals, uh, and uh, he was, um, you know, is kind of uh, adhering to the Russian the, the Russian state guidelines for. Um, for uh, literary production, and which was very much uh, socialist realist uh, at the time, of course. Um, and um, the uh, what, what was interesting actually that is that the Chinese um, were becoming more and more forceful in this effort, and they were trying to set the agenda by themselves. And this was kind of like a, became official uh, after the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, and during the Cultural Revolution, so we're talking uh, the um, you know mid to late sixties and early seventies here, and they um, they they completely split uh, the um, Afro Asian Writers Bureau uh, along um, Sino Soviet lines. Uh, so they created uh, there, there was um, uh, you know um, the, the Afro Asian Writers Bureau was split in two. The Chinese controlled one wing, um, and the Soviets continued to control. Uh, 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 another wing, which came to be called the Permanent Bureau of Afro-Asian Writers, uh, but the, um, the so it's, it's it's very interesting this history because it kind of goes you know as you say uh, it kind of illustrates how these political divides uh, so this uh, between the Soviets and the Chinese and how they were you know trying to create their own spheres of influence on the geo- on the geopolitical stage was also reflected in the conception of world literature. Uh, and world culture that the Chinese were trying to push. Um, and this is something that's also, uh, you know, so that has ramifications uh, still today, I'd say, because um, still today the Chinese uh, are trying to collaborate with uh, what they call Yafei La. So countries, uh, Yafe La is, is uh, you know, shorthand for Africa, Asia, Latin America. And still today they're, they are setting up, you know, their Confucius Institutes in places like Africa, um and um you know using that history uh the, you know the 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 long geopolitical history that china has with, with in, in a decolonizing world uh, to their advantage in the, you know as part of the uh, cultural belt and road initiative you could say um um but yeah i mean you you mentioned gramsci i can go a little bit i can go on a little bit yes. more about gramsci if you want Please
1: continue. yes
0: um, so yeah um Gramsci has this wonderful notion of of, uh, concezione del mondo or conception of the world. And uh, for him, of course, this has to do with his famous idea of the hegemony, right? That, uh, you know, people who are on the margins uh, can, um, from the bottom up, from the grassroots, uh, you know, overtake the the existing hegemony right uh, and culture for him of course and language uh language learning deep language learning is very important in this we have to for gramsci um in order for your own uh marginal conception of the world to become dominant you have to first learn how to speak the language of the rural of the rulers you have to learn uh standardized italian in his uh in, in the italian context uh in order for you to um uh, hopefully one day make sure that you're in a position where your own conception of the world can be in a, in a position of hegemony but maybe I can talk a little bit about translatability here because that's an important concept yes, for him as absolutely. well mm-hmm. um, because uh, Gramsci, that was going to be my
1: next question actually <laughs> but oh, continue well,
0: yeah, uh, so <laughs> just, I'll keep it short then but yeah, Gramsci, okay. Gramsci was basically very mindful of, of the of the fact that um, you know, ideas don't necessarily travel everywhere. Ideas don't ne- mm-hmm. are not necessarily translatable everywhere. And uh, he actually writes about the idea of translatability much, uh, you know, uh, decades before someone like Emily Apter very eruditely in her book writes about it. Um, but for him, of course, it's uh, something that is uh, that has more. Uh, you know, of course, for Emily Apter as well, it has you know very big. Philosophical consequences for her as well. But, uh, but uh, for, for Gramsci, you know, he, he's kind of warning us um, uh, against the pitfalls of universalization. So what you are seeing in China today, what they're doing, for instance, with their global Belt and Road is one of the risks I think that Gramsci was warning against in his prison notebooks, um, namely that ideas don't necessarily translate. Anywhere and uh, even though you are historically speaking, or if, even though you are speaking from a historical position of marginalization, once your idea, once you are, you know, you are in a position where you're the new hegemon. Where you know, China is a new hegemon. It's it's really, uh, you know, I think important to remember that they're they're they're. Historically, yes, they were on the margins of history. We colonized China. We we did a lot of really bad things. The West did a lot of really bad things. I'm not saying we didn't do bad things, but but today China is kind of copying that logic uh right uh, it is kind of copying the same exclusionary rationale in the as they are building their own universal they are using all that history of uh, you know what what happened during the cold war um and they are they're kind of uh, running the running the risk of running into this the same um you know uh, pitfalls of translatability <laughs> right. uh so to speak uh, yeah
1: yeah well and i think you you mentioned the same sort of and i don't know that caution would be the right word but that's what i'm going to use here almost this this in your in your introduction especially as you um talk about um ai Weiwei and um uh, his his building or his um then the building of beijing getting ready beijing for the the olympic games there is this one part on your introduction where you do talk about, um, and then this is, I'm just going to use your sentence here just because it's its much, much more well written than my paraphrasing would be, but oh, um, come on. You're, right. <laughs> you're giving, you're giving right. me
0: too much credit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful book for those of you listening. It's a wonderful book um you're right, China was effectively whitewashing its past self understanding in an effort to convince the world that it was ready to join the global order. and what I hear, especially in your previous remarks in connection to to this particular section in your book, is that there is um there is a particular template perhaps of world building that that uh, we are witnessing here, and that that template is one of universalizing. Um, and universalizing at the expense of um, ignoring and or erasing uh, the different, the other attempts for writing a story of the world. Um, and so I, I, f- I feel like opening up your book with Ai Weiwei's work seems to be a, a very astute observation of, of what you mentioned earlier in your, in, in your conversation which is to say that what we are seeing in the way that China is constructing its uh, its world and, and the, the way that it is building um, or trying to have this cultural um, influence across you know, Africa, Latin America, et cetera, or the global south, that, that it is almost the same sort of approach that we have witnessed previously um, in in European expressions of the world or your universality, is that would that be fair to say? It,
0: it's it, it's it's fair to say, and I do make that analogy. Uh, mm-hmm. Though of course you know, with the caveat that you know the the Chinese conception of the world or you know their their worldview is of course one that has grown over millennia, and um, you, know, um, I, I, you know I you know I don't want to brush over that, and nor do I want to brush over the history. Of colonization on, in, the, in the Chinese context, you know, those are legitimate issues, and the West has a lot of questions to ask itself. And I, you know, I, I, I do not uh, shy away from making that very clear in the book. But at the same time, as you say, uh, we live in a world that is changing rapidly, um, and uh, I think you know our ways of thinking about the world need to change. Along with the world, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we we live in a world in which, yes, China used to be during the um, late Qing dynasty and and during the 20th century, a country that um, was that was very weak on the international stage. Uh, you know, they um, they were um, legitimately perhaps uh, joining global efforts or, or worldwide efforts. Uh, to fight colonialism uh, of course you know uh, the history of that is also quite momentous you know we're talking about uh, if we're talking about decolonization you know uh, that kind of coins that all of that history coincides with the mao era you know, don't don't forget mao comes to power in 1949 the cultural revolution is late 60s and you know all of the history of decolonization mm-hmm. uh, you know coincides with a very bloody moment or so very uh, dark pages in in, in Chinese history which um, you know people in China are to a large extent still shy away from discussing today um, but um, yeah so there's a lot that comes into the into the picture there but I think all in all you can you can make the argument especially today um you know China is using you know there China claims to be uh, a communist country, for instance, but of course, that is not, not not the case at all today. You know, China is a state capitalist country. And of course, uh, ideologically, yes, they are a communist country. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the, you know uh, you, I think, um, you know, Marx is, is useful to us today because he emb- embodies the spirit of critique. And uh, I think this is something that in China, in the Chinese context, is completely absent. Because anyone who dares to uh, transgress the, the boundaries of what of accepted criticism in the Chinese context is immediately shut down. You know, it's one of the um, you know, it's, it's 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 one of the most invasive surveillance states that that we know today. Um, I mean, we, we we both met in Hong Kong in 2014. Uh, and uh, I remember on one occasion skipping class <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, in Jacob Edmund's otherwise wonderful uh, class right, on world right, literature, right. et cetera, uh, to go and uh, check out the protests that were happening, happening yes. there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, Hong Kong is another example of how uh, China today is kind of uh, repressing uh, those at its margins, it's repressing voices mm-hmm. that are there to be critical, and this this is something I think you could say. Yeah, as you say, this template is being being copied by them. They they're they're using the tools to a large extent that the West has used in the past to to mm-hmm. to try and do the same. <laughs> um, you mm-hmm, know, it's it, mm-hmm. it's a bold claim, but I do think, with a lot of caveats, you can go as sure. far as, as as making that claim uh, today. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um. I. I'm glad that you mentioned Marx because, and this is a little bit shifting of gears, but we can come back to some of the points that you were making uh, about China if, if need be later. But I wanted to shift gears a little bit because there is this um, passage that you quote at length from the Communist Manifesto, and, and perhaps we're returning a little bit to our conversation about untrans- untranslatability that we uh, started earlier. Um, there is the section where you dedicate to word literature debates, which is very refreshing and you place in conversation a lot of the scholars that have contributed through the years to the idea of word literature. Um, and I was particularly interested in the conversation uh, that you introduce through Emily Apter and Jonathan Eric and their respective works um, and their focus on the Communist Manifesto passage, which announces the coming of word literature and as a comparatist your conversation engages in a close analysis of the word of the word uh or, or of the particular phrases and words in the translation of the passage from the manifesto um, stating that the purpose of both apter and eric is relevant to your own argument and um, i it was, it was a wonderful example of a comparatist work, right, to see that close reading of, 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 the, of the translation. And I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit more about this particular juncture, um, how untranslatability is so crucial to the work um, that the book is trying to accomplish here um, and the relevance of the arguments that you're bringing forth
0: absolutely and now we're 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 getting to uh you know the the kind of like the field i want to make my my the, the book the, the book tries to contribute to all of these debates on 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 world literature right the question of translatability or untranslatability is an important one there um and i i i think um what you know i'm i'm kind of like in the middle i'd say in this debate uh, and like I, I hope the book tries to make that clear because what I think you know, people like Emily Aptor have already very raised very legitimate legitimate claims, uh, uh, or very legitimate uh, have you know uh, pinpoint the number of of problems uh, that they have with uh, the world literary approach, and I and I I, I broadly agree with uh, with uh, with her points there, uh, with you know this idea because. You know, in people like David Damrosch, whom I respect a lot, of course, you know, like I, it's not as, as if I'm, you know, taking sides in this debate, <laughs> but uh, people like, like David Damrosch, he, he plays a lot of em- emphasis on this uh, idea that literature or world literature gains in translation, right? And, um, you know, and I, I'd say he's kind of with uh, someone like uh, Pascal Casanova, um, you know, and, and her idea of uh, literature world. This, and you know how uh, for them, world literature is 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 something that very much functions in you, you could say a center-periphery uh, dynamic. Um, uh, and uh, this is something that people like uh, Emily Apter. Uh, and and but others, you know, I I, I look into Feng Chi. I I hope that's how he how he pr- pronounce his name. I've always wondered. <laughs> Feng Chi, I think, uh, is a wonderful book. And Amir uh, Mufti uh, wrote a wonderful book. Uh, and so this debate is ongoing. Uh, but I do think that the debate has sort of come to a close in the sense that uh, you know people like David damrush have started to welcome in these critical voices. You know, so uh, I think uh, you know there has been. There, there the debate has been quite heated at times i mean someone like uh, gayatri spivak uh, gayatri chakravarthi spivak has also contributed to the debate uh, with her idea of planetarity. um um so wait a minute what was i trying to say yes you 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 were you were uh, uh asking about that uh, passage from uh, from mark so this is something that uh, a lot of uh, scholars uh, on world literature have have quoted but the the, the, the it's kind of like a, a the passage kind of uh, and it it holds the problem of translation within itself right um because um uh, there is this notion of verkehren in german in in the in the original german of the of that famous passage on World literature, where uh, Marx and um, and Engels claim that world literature is something that, uh, like the world, uh, is you know belongs to the bourgeoisie, and it's up to um, those on the margins to win that world back. Right? He, he makes that argument in a different place in the manifesto, but that's basically what he's trying to get at there. that World literature is 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 a bourgeois phenomenon, and that uh, you know we, we need to win this world uh, back um and you know the that that word verkehren, and this is something that emily Apter and jonathan Arack, uh pick up on um etymologically it you know it you, you could translate it as uh, traffic right Verkehr, that's the word alzeitiger Verkehr is what the uh, original uh, german has traffic in all directions you could translate it as that but verkeeren, and you know, it's verkeert I'm, 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 I'm a native Dutch speaker, <laughs> so that's also uh, it, it brings me to, you know, I'm thinking in Dutch here. verkeert means the wrong way round, right, upside down, and this is something that that's there also etymologically in the German. So um, Emily Apter and and uh, and uh i pick up on this as this uh, idea of a verkehrte welt or a world uh, turned upside down and that uh, marx and, and engels are already uh, you know and, and they are in manifesto uh, making that claim and um i was trying to build on that a little bit in in the in my introduction because i do think um uh, that it's important to as you say look at look at the world not just as a western phenomenon not just as a western idea But as as part of this uh, constellation of uh, competing avatars of you know different people in people have always have tried to come up with their with their own conceptions of the world, um, and I tried to bring those in conversation a little bit in the book. Mm -hmm. I hope that's still making sense. (laughs) No, it does. It
1: does absolutely. Um, And I I find the notion of the untranslatable. Uh, and perhaps you know it's it's a concept, and and Emily Apter's book against translation is a very lengthy treatment of this particular uh, of this particular concept. And there is this there is this power in the idea of the untranslatable, in the sense that. It allows for those spaces that can't be known, right? To to create and 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 perhaps this is me just um, kind of f- speaking very broadly here, but but those untranslatable spaces, right? To constitute their own avatars, if you will, to borrow the word that you use in the book, right? The avatar being the story that we are telling about the world, and um, I think it's in the in the debates of word literature, this is the the the, the points of contention sometimes have to do with how we institutionalize the study of word literature and you know you mentioned Demrash earlier and a lot of his concerns in a lot of his writings have have to do with well, where is the discipline and how do we teach word literature and what do we count as word literature right And so the the, the categories about gaining in translation, etc. but um, there is this also this concern of other writers like Mufti and Chia who, Look at the criticism of the your Eurocentric universal or the Eurocentric world, um, and even you, in your book, you mention um, the the critique that Edward Said and Orientalism extends toward this idea of the universal that is very Eurocentric, but mm-hmm. but that the criticism leveraged against him has to do with the fact that there is this desire to bridge. The gap between the center and periphery, rather than consider the critique or, or critique the reasons for the gap being mm. there.
0: Exactly. Uh, and I'm not yeah. sure.
1: I'm not sure if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, but this is what I picked up on whenever I was reading
0: yeah, your
1: book. But... Um, thoughts on that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, if if I have to pick a side, I mean, I, I <laughs> let me let me say again. I think David Damrosh is a wonderful scholar and he, he wrote a wonderful book recently. And I, I actually managed to still get it into the book because if I have to pick a side in the debate, I'm with, the, <laughs> I, I'm with, uh, you know, Gayatri Chakravorti Spivak in Death of Discipline, who kind of, um, uh, you know, is, is is arguing for this concept of planetarity. And a lot of people who are critical of, of world literature in the vein of David Damrosh and, and uh, Pascal Casanova, but also uh, someone like uh, Moretti, um, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, you know, will 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 return to this idea of planetarity, right? But uh, you know, that th- there's also the uh, Emily Apter. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, corner you could say, <laughs> uh, wh- who is coming with uh, with the idea of the untranslatable and how uh, world literature places too much emphasis on studying works in translation. And this is something that you know is kind of maybe um, epitomized or, uh, or exemplified by the fact that there are a lot of world literature anthologies which are only in English. Um, and, uh, you know, world list, literature uh, courses historically as they grew mostly, um, uh, you know, during the uh, d- during the Cold War, actually, because it's actually David Damros writes about this, how world literature as a field, as a discipline was established during the Cold War. Uh, as a field of study, uh, because you know, they, they, what 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 what's, what to do with all these students who are coming in on the GI Bill? What to do with the democratized uh, university campus, and how to teach these students? You know, uh, uh, comparative literature as a field historically kind of grew as a field for more advanced students, right? And students who had already studied languages, and um, you know, students who were able to study uh, um, in Three or four different, or study texts in three or four different uh, languages, like like I have painstakingly done, <laughs> or tried to <laughs> do. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, so I, I, would, you know, if I have to pick a side, I'll, I'd pick the after side. But right. someone like okay. uh, it's like David Damrosh more recently, has really has kind of embraced this criticism, and I do think this is a good thing. And so he wrote a wonderful book called Comparing the Literatures, uh, uh, comparing the literatures um which kind of draws a history of comparative literature and world literature uh, and looks at scholars like Spivak he discusses Spivak in detail um but also you know he looks at the history of comparative literature as a field um and uh, he more he, he i think wants to more than anything build a bridge to all these critical voices so in a sense World literature as a field has already welcomed these voices. You know, people like Emily Apter have spoken at the Institute for World Literature, I believe. Uh, There's a a number of um, volumes that came out, including uh, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet because it just came out a couple of months ago. And it's very expensive. It's the Cambridge History of World Literature, uh, edited by um, Demjani Ganguly, I think. Um, And then there's uh, other books that kind of bridge the two sides of the debate for or against world literature right uh, so i do think uh, um I, I the book kind of like tries to my my book then tries to kind of sketch out those debates and um yeah i do think you know i i'm 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 a, I'm a sucker for sorry excuse my french <laughs> i'm a sucker for for problems in translation i like to look at the original and i've been trained as such uh, to always look at the original um, but um yeah i'm uh, yeah I'm, I'm sure i hope that makes a little bit sense it does yeah it
1: doesn't and, and I, I and i do sense in your book that there is this um there there are parts of it where you i could tell that there was that pleasure in looking at the original which is why i, I actually wanted to talk to you about. Specifically, that passage in the manifesto, because you do, you do what comparatists do so well, and you do it very well too, where you're looking at the language and the original, and 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 uh, drawing the analysis from there, which I I, I think uh, to be a very important exercise in understanding the places that are untranslatable, and um, and I think too, just kind of extend some of your points that you have made um, when it comes to you know thinking about the idea of literature gaining in translation there is some truth to that and and i feel like conversations like the, the damarash's book what is word literature and then other um others who have contributed to to that conversation I think that they have raised important questions for other scholars then to kind of pick up and think about modes of circulation Mm -hmm. and think about Imbalances of uh, of of power in the publication, and and also a- in terms of what language is translated into what language, uh, and 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 so those questions—not that they weren't asked before—but I, I believe that they became more pressing with uh, with studies like David Damrosch and others, um, mm. and I I I tend to 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 appreciate the kind of work that you are putting forth here because it seems to be one that sees the value on um, both and other camps that surround these two uh, polar sides, maybe. Mm. Um, And it sort of stays true to this idea of the book overall, which is to say that there are these different poles or these different points where we can imagine the world or where we can imagine universality. And um, I think it's very pertinent to the discussion of word literature and the debates that have been taking place in it over the last few decades, um, as you you highlighted earlier. Um, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit with your permission to sure, sure. <laughs> to the conversation because I meant to ask this earlier, but I think we we got into a, a rich conversation about word literature, and I didn't want to interrupt that. But I want to go back a little bit to your um, to your points about the Afro-Asians Writers Bureau, and we you know this was uh, made in connection to the. Contribution that China had during the Cold War after the Sino-Soviet split, um, and there are there are parts in the book where you also uh, mention the non-aligned uh, the non-aligned ideology, right? This um, mm-hmm. and and so I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more because it seems to be very pertinent to the work that you're doing you know, the the, the ideology of non-alignment, right? That there are these two powerful actors and then you have a group of nations from the global south and Latin America and, and, and Africa and Southeast Asia and that China pl- does play an important role in this and so I was I was wondering if you wanted if you could talk a little bit more about the ideology of non-alignment and how mm. it it uh, contributes to your discussion overall but how it also interrupts this binary between uh, the two powerful camps or this Janus faced um, story of Mm. the cold war as it is generally narrated
0: yeah i i I think yes the the non-alignment movement i mean i actually wrote part of my dissertation on it (laughs) but but I'm, i'm a little bit um i'd say uh i kind of changed my 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 thoughts about or my thought pattern about it a little bit um uh but uh, yeah, it 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 was. I I say it's an important marker. Uh, someone like uh, Deepesh Chakrabarti uh, uh, has has done wonderful research on uh, the Bandung moment, right? Uh, and also, uh, one of my PhD advisors, uh, Lydia Liu, uh, has, has has researched um, kind of the what she calls the shadows of universalism and how um, the non-alignment movements uh, kind of. Uh, Uh, she she wrote a wonderful article called the shadows of universalism in um in which uh she investigates how uh, you know in the universal declaration of human rights how the non-alignment movement played an important part in that and how those two are quite related Uh, and but the non-alignment movement uh, uh, i i'd say is is a marker of the history of decolonization broadly speaking you know, the Bandung Conference um, of 1955 was, you know, you could say a a blimp on the large arc of, uh, on the long arc uh, of decolonizing history, if that's a way of putting it. Uh, It was an important moment for sure. And yes, uh, um, it was also important in the sense that, uh, and and China played an important part in in, in it, uh, you're right. So for instance, uh, Zhou Enlai, uh, you know, one of the most important political figures in the Chinese context at the time, uh, he uh, gave a speech at uh, at Bandung, um, and um, the Non-Alignment Movement was also very uh, it was instrumental in the creation of the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau. Um, but I think uh, what has been what what and a lot of uh, scholars have actually studied this history. It's been there has been a lot of debates uh, recently or in recent years on, um, you know, uh, socialist internationalism or also, you know, like, uh, um, you know, the Afro-Asian, the concept of the Afro-Asian. Um, and um, I think what has been a little bit overlooked is is the way in which uh, uh, China uh, kind of wanted to um, uh, champion a mostly nationalist agenda, especially uh um, from the 1960s onwards and this was perhaps detrimental to the non-alignment movement in 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 many ways uh in the sense that uh, you know the non-alignment movement was supposed to embody this internationalist ideal but at the same time you get this competition within the socialist world between uh, the block of nations that were very much uh, choosing china's side on the one hand, and the block of nations in a decolonizing world that were choosing the Soviets. Um, and um, yeah, what I tried to do in the book is kind of yeah, um, explore that history of those divides, those divides that existed within uh, the decolonizing world, um, where, uh, you know, the question of nationalism didn't go away. It was actually an important, uh, you know, in, in spite of all of these efforts to come up with this new internationalist ideal, there were. Um, you know, countries like China that were very much putting their own uh, agenda uh, center stage. You know, the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau is a good example. They, um, after the uh, the two bureaus split along Sino-Soviet lines, uh, the Afro-Asian Writers Bureau uh, under the Chinese control actually moved to Beijing, uh, and uh, I found all all sorts of wonderful details like how uh, the the Chinese set up an a writer sanatorium where writers from across the Afro-Asian world, uh, you know, from countries that were in a Chinese sphere of influence, could go and, and you know have a retreat and everything. <laughs> and I found lots of wonderful, wonderfully interesting details, uh, kind of buried in the in the archive in uh, in the archives in, in the National Library of China, and uh, it, was, it was really exciting to dig, dig it all up. Oh, but yeah, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, well, and um, I. I'm wondering, you know, um, you mentioned that there were these div- that there were these divisions within even the decolonizing movement of this international, you know, um, international group of nations in the Non-Aligned Movement, and it it seems to me that perhaps that's that's sort of reflective of the spirit of the very movement, right? Um, this idea that um, there is this third way of course which is not necessarily well it's reacting against the imperialism racism and um and all other isms um of these this divided cold war camp but also these divisions that you mentioned within the non-aligned movement i'm wondering if those are um, perhaps the expressions of what its project ultimately was right to to speak to the different ways of thinking about the world. Um, And of course, nationalism complicates whatever it is that I'm proposing here, but um, that is something that came up for me as you were speaking about, you know, these divisions within the movement, Um, you know, whether or not, isn't isn't that a way to think about this um, multifaceted conception of what the world is and, how does that manifest, even as you know this group of nations is trying to create this third way international um, um, collaboration between between nations that aren't necessarily interested in entering these opposing um, camp of of the of the Cold War. Mm. Um, all right, and I also wanted to um, kind of go back a little bit to the text because I, I realized that our conversation on the non-aligned kind of took us away a little bit from um, from you know the the, the the project at hand here, and um, there was this passage in your introduction which I um, I felt was very important to. To set the stage or, or create or to frame your project as a whole. Um, and there are several points in the introduction where you are very careful uh, and, and thoughtful to, um, as you say in, in your book, to reiterate my allegiance, allegiance to the critique of universality from the standpoint of feminism, postcolonialism, anti racism, and deconstruction. I also believe that we need to level the critical playing field and adapt the object of our critique for our changing times. When the West was deconstructing itself, the rest was constructing. And that was a line that really struck a a chord with me um, in the sense that it's a very clear and concise way to situate the dynamics at play. And... I wanted to hear a little bit more about what it is that seems important at this juncture here, and how this idea of while the West was deconstructing, the rest was constructing, mm-hmm. um, and the role that it plays in your project of rethinking universality. Because you know, there's, you know, it's it's this animation of these different movements within these this this separate regions, and the project of deconstructing and constructing seems op- seem opposing, right? Um, but also in the deconstruction, there is some sort of world building, and what that is, you know, we can we can think about.
0: Yeah, no, that's that, that, that's a great uh, great point, and I think I mean what I'm trying to get at there is basically the, the timeline. If we think of the timeline, you know, when did uh, the decon de- de- deconstruction um, happen? The deconstruction of the um, of western metaphysics that uh Derrida inaugurated with his of grammatology um uh, you know we're talking the the 1960s and of course um you know he he also writes eloquently in a way that uh, I never <laughs> uh, I will never be able to write but uh, Derrida is very eloquently about how uh you know one of the you know key points in his project is precisely also deconstructing ethnocentrism now for him logocentrism and ethnocentrism are 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 deeply intertwined and so it's, it kind of also explains why someone like Derrida would become important for postcolonial thinkers thinkers like Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak. Um but um if we if you look at the timeline um you know, post-structuralism, post-colonialism, the Poco pomo uh, like um, um, like a friend of mine always used to call it Poco pomo post-colonialism, post-modernism. <laughs> you know, um, you know all of you know, all of those important moments, like you know, Gaia, Chryssakavortis, Candy, Subaltern Speak, etc. You know, th- that was the 1980s. 1980s is also a time when people on the other side of the political spectrum, on the right. Um, you know, like Francis Fukuyama were declaring the end of history, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and so, um, but the 1980s uh, kind of also coincide with a time when, you know, we, we have towards the end of the 1980s the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you, you, so for me, those two moments of deconstruction on the one hand and uh, construction, uh, in a sense, construction, in the sense that, you know, the the rest of the world started to embrace uh, state capitalism uh, during this period. So uh, uh, I, I think that's something that perhaps, um, you know, seminal thinkers, and I, I don't have the ambition to be like Derrida or whatever, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying here, <laughs> but seminal thinkers like Derrida, uh, they have, um, they kind of, they, they weren't able to foresee that perhaps. You know, so uh, they uh, their work... Uh, was very important in the sense that they inaugurated the deconstruction of the Western Universal. Um, but they were doing so at a time that other places were also, um, you know, building their own claims to worldliness, constructing their own, own claims to worldliness. And those claims to worldliness were um, kind of muscle-bound. Um, muscle, muscle bound. I'm not sure if you can say it muscle-bound or uh, they were... Uh, they coincided with their with 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 their economic growth after you know like the in, in the 1990s uh, and also in the 1980s. Places like China started to boom, uh, right? And um, uh, one of the arguments that I'm trying to make in the book is. Uh, that these thinkers in the 1980s they were making very important claims about how the um, you know the universal as it has been imagined in Western metaphysics and philosophy excluded those on its margins, queers, non-whites, um, um, you know, people with disabilities, etc. Um, and that's very important. But perhaps uh, we should now, in, in in the world that we live in, in this multipolar world where places like China are becoming much more forceful. Uh, where places like uh, like uh, like Russia, uh, you know, um, you know, have completely embraced uh, capitalism. Um, you know, we're living in a world where those old left wing left right divides are no longer as clear cuts. You know, uh, um, so we should also perhaps use the tools uh, that we have at our disposition. Uh, you know, the tools that um feminist critique, critics that deconstructivist critics that Marxist critics have offered us and still continue to offer us for the deconstruction of the Western universal. We should, you know, to to put it simply the Western universal, right? uh, we should also, we, I think we should use those tools, those wonderful tools that we have, feminism, deconstruction, Marxism, and we should use those tools to perhaps deconstruct the emerging worlds of today uh, or try to at least and, um, that's one of the arguments I'm trying to put forward uh, there mm-hmm. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. right yeah and and it seems that you know there is this um call for for an interrogation of all all these worlds that are emerging and and of course, in the West, we have you know these tools that are useful in the deconstruction of Western. Universality and and they could perhaps be useful as elsewhere, um, exactly, and 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 that's exactly. very clear. Yeah, that's very clear um, throughout the the book. And I think you sort of deploy this as well. And you mentioned uh, Huang Yongping, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that name correctly. No, very um, good. Very <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you mentioned him earlier, and um, particularly these um, uh, these two exhibits—one in France and um, one in China, right? And
0: yeah,
1: and I think your discussion in that chapter um, it, it seems to kind of illustrate perhaps um, the suggestion, the overall argument of the book, which is to say, you know deconstructing the emerging worlds because an, an exhibit in itself is almost a construct, well, it is a constructed space, right? That yes, it's, that yes. it's trying to create a narrative or a story. And so in your reading on, on, um, Wang Yongping's, um, exhibits in France and China, it seems to me, and you know, um, I'd, I'd like to, to kind of invite your thoughts on it, but it seems to me that, that part of w- what it is that you're doing is you're, you're placing in or you're animating the very argument that you're putting forth in the book um,
0: yeah no it's it, he's, a, he's a fascinating case because you know, so Huan Ping was you know this today perhaps he, he sadly passed away a number of years ago but he's today remembered as a global artist so you because you know he was born in in China yes and he produced work in China uh, but he uh, moved to France, um, and uh, interest and so he actually represented France at one point at the Venice Biennale. So I wanted to think about this notion of what it means to be global in in art, and then of course in the, the pre- preceding uh, chapter I look at the notion of world art and I look at Malheureux's Musée Imaginaire and how he came up with this kind of what you could say neo colonial um, claim to the all of the art of the world and how. Um, you know, in, in, in a place like France with the Musée Imaginaire that Malraux designed, uh, all of the world's art could be salvaged and just put on display uh, through his, uh, you know, like collection of, of photographs and, 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 and albums that he put together. Uh, but Huang Yongping is very much, yeah, like you say, uh, it kind of illustrates, what, uh, I, I'd say, one of the key points in the book in the sense that he was uh, captured in the two exhibitions that he was um, um, exhibited in 1989 uh, between two competing claims to the universal. Uh, so on the one hand, he was uh, uh, framed in uh, Le Magicien de la Terre, which is today remembered as one of the first "quote-unquote" global exhibitions of, uh, of 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 art. Uh, as and 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 I and I looked into the archives I went to the Centre Pompidou because this was a, an exhibition that took place at uh, Centre uh, Centre Pompidou uh, and the um, uh, Grand Palais de la Villette in in Paris in 1989 um, and I looked at all of the, at the archives there and basically what you the, the only conclusion that you can come to and someone like Lucy Steets also comes to the same conclusion in her a wonderful history of this exhibition Is basically that um, you know the magicien de la terre constituted a neo-colonial claim to the universal in much in the same vein as Malraux's claim had been, Um, and um, so Hoang Ping was captured in 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 one claim to the universal of of a of a a neo-colonial strand, quite conservative strand as well in the France of 1989. And on the other hand, in China in 1989, he was placed uh, he was uh, shown at an exhibition. Uh, called uh, China Avant-Garde in its English translation then. Um, That was an exhibition curated by Kao Ming Lu. And uh, Kao Ming Lu is a wonderful uh, Chinese art historian who also wrote extensively about what he did as a curator in the 80s in China. Um, And at the time, uh, someone like Huan Yongping was framed in China as in a completely different claim to the universal as he was in France. Uh, Namely, uh, uh, he was kind of uh, placed under the in the framework of what is known in China as Marxist humanism. That kind of uh, in the 1980s was was prevalent among Chinese theorists, but also artists. Um, And so, what I'm trying to do in the book, I I don't want to go into too much detail. Go and read it. (laughs) I'd say Uh, (laughs) I try to compare those two competing. You know, there, there, there are two claims to the universal. It's very interesting because Huang Yong-ping himself saw himself as a deconstructionist. <laughs> he taught, him, he taught yeah. himself as a, yeah. as a Dadaist artist who mm. wanted to, um, you know, who was critical of all kinds of, you know, overarching frameworks in which he would eventually be placed. So I tried to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, um, you know, dig all of that up uh, and I tried to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. wonderful,
1: wonderful. Well, um. I also wanted to think as, and in closing in particular, um, I wanted to see um, and think with you about perhaps uh, directions for word literature um, as you see them, uh, especially in light of your book and uh, implications, you know, given the arguments that you have put forth, but also perhaps, uh, Projects, right? That have ha- the book as it is has inspired for you and possible directions um, that you will be taking.
0: Sure. So uh, I-, I think there there's a lot of really exciting work happening in. World slash comparative literature. I think you can. We can. We can almost say uh, that a lot of people that world literature and comparative literature sort of have joint forces. <laughs> and uh, some people are more. Some voices are more critical, uh, like Emily Apter. Um, you know, some voices are more. Uh, you know, on on David dammer's side, but uh, I think um there there has been there have been avenues of collaboration. Uh, but i i, I like the i i i want I, I think in my next project explore the idea of uh, world literature a little bit more and perhaps uh, link it to the idea of democracy and i know that's a big concept um but um i i do think um it w- would be interesting to pursue that I'm, I'm i'm looking into in the chinese context someone like Bei tao um and uh, th- then i would like to compare that with um with thinkers like um, writers like uh, Edouard Louis, uh, who question uh, uh, democracy from a completely different uh, perspective than someone like Beitao does, uh, but I really flesh out that idea of 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 democracy and how that comes to fore in world literature, and then uh, I, I'm I'm hoping to to sort of build on Edward Said's wonderful uh, book um, uh, World Literature, or no, it wasn't World Literature, Democratic Literary Criticism, Humanism and Democratic Literary Criticism. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah, that's one of the premises there. Uh, But yeah, linking that to recent debates in world literature, that's what I'm hoping to do, but it's very much in the in in the early stages, uh, so I hope that one day that will be another book. But uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, you just finished this one, so I perhaps yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps just kind of uh, getting the inspiration. Thank you so much, Peter. That that those projects that project sounds really wonderful, and I am looking forward to reading your next book. I know you probably need a long break after finishing this I one. Do, but... <laughs> I do. I <laughs> do. <laughs> but I'm I've really enjoyed speaking with you uh, and thinking about your book. And I am, again, really looking forward to your other work and talking to you again about it once it's ready. Thank you so much.
0: It's my pleasure. It was really a pleasure speaking with you, Aralda. Uh,
1: it was a pleasure talking to you too.